say it's not as bad as you think. Not as bad as you think. You may be seated. God bless you. Father, I humble myself before you this morning and thank you always for every opportunity to share the word of the Lord. I pray that you would grant unto me just now a measure of your grace that would enable me to explain and expound upon this scripture in a way that makes sense to all of us. Knowing that we are made free by truth, may your word go forth as truth today and bring transformation. Especially for the one that is here today that feels like that things have took a turn for the worse. May we have a greater God perspective today, realizing that it's not as bad as we think. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. It's not as bad as you think. That's good news in the times in which we live. <clears throat> Elijah is probably one of the most colorful characters in all the Old Testament. I like him from the very start. One chapter, we don't even know Elijah exists. The next chapter, he's front page news. He goes from obscurity to notoriety at the snap of a finger. I like Elijah right from the beginning. He's the prophet that walks right up to Ahab the king and boldly declares it's not going to rain anymore until I tell it to rain. This guy was some kind of character. If you map out all the amazing miracles of his ministry, there are numbers of them. He prays it stops raining. Three and a half years later, he prays it starts raining. One occasion he prays and fire falls right out of heaven and consumes a sacrifice. This guy, Elijah, was some kind of character. On one occasion, he outran horses and chariots for 30 miles to the city of Jezreel. He was anointed of the Lord. One time he raised a boy from death to life. All kind of miracles in his ministry. He didn't even die a regular death. When it was time for him to go to heaven, a chariot just swung out of heaven, picked him up, and just transported him right into heaven. Wow, this guy Elijah is some kind of character. However, when we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, we see a single episode of failure and regret in his life. I just read it to you a few moments ago. It's the scripture where he receives a death threat from Queen Jezebel, and he acts so out of character. This courageous man becomes a coward. This faithful man becomes faithless. And he runs for his life and he ends up laying down up underneath a juniper tree and asking God to let him die. He didn't even want to see the light of another day. He'd lost all sense of hope. He ends up in a cave and God asks him a couple of times, what are you doing here? How did you get in this condition? And I ask myself the question, how could such a man of faith and vitality end up being so defeated and forlorn? And I come to the conclusion, I think it has something to do with perspective. Somehow, in the mind of Elijah, he had allowed his problems to magnify and his God to become smaller. That's always a mistake. If we allow our problems to get too big or our God to get too small, then we're always going to be in trouble. But I believe that in this scripture text today, we're going to learn how to keep that 
proper perspective. I read a quote that I've been thinking about a number of days now. It says, ships don't sink because of the water around them. Ships sink because of the water that gets in them. The problem with Elijah was he allowed the problems on the outside to get over on the inside. I might be talking to somebody here today, perhaps that's recently been through a divorce or you got a bad report from the doctor or uh, you've had some re financial reversals in your life or some bad news. I just want to come by here and tell you from a heaven's perspective that it's not as bad as you think. I want you to be the preacher for the next five seconds and look at somebody beside you and say it's not as bad as you think. Because if God be for you, who could be against you? And even though things look bad, God always looks good. I think this is a good place to clap our hands and exalt the name of our God because he's still in control and nothing is beyond his reach. I want us to focus on three facts that help us to put perspective back in order. And let's go to point number one right now. And the first fact that I want to mention is the fact that your problem is smaller than you think. We learned that from this story in 1 Kings chapter 19 because at verse 2, we read that the real problem is one woman. Her name was Jezebel. She was the one that sent a messenger to Elijah. Eight verses later at verse number 10, when Elijah is recounting his problems to God, he says, they seek to take my life. Notice in verse 2, it's a single person, Jezebel. But in his mind, when he's telling about it later, it becomes plural. He says they. There was no they to it. It was, it was a single person. But he somehow allowed his problem to come bigger than what it really was. I searched this story several times so that I could tell you this accurately. I don't see any evidence that Ahab, her husband, Jezebel's husband, ever wanted to kill Elijah. I don't think Ahab had anything to do with it. I don't think Jezebel needed Ahab's permission to do what she wanted to do. She pretty much did everything she wanted to do without his permission. She instigated this death threat. She initiated this death threat. It was all Jezebel's idea. So Ahab was not trying to kill Elijah. It was just Jezebel. She sends a messenger, and I cannot find anywhere in this passage where the messenger wanted to kill Elijah. If he wanted to kill him, he was standing right in front of him when he read him, the death threat, he could have whipped out a sword, he could have took a bow and arrow, he could have killed him, he was right in front of him. I don't read any evidence where Ahab wanted to kill Elijah or the messenger wanted to kill Elijah. There were no soldiers, there, were, there was not an army, there, there were not numbers of troops that wanted to kill Elijah. Not even the general population wanted to kill Elijah. If I understand this scripture correctly, one person, one wanted to kill Elijah, and her name is Jezebel. But later on when Elijah's talking about it, he says, God, they all want to kill me. They're all after me. No, somehow in his mind, his problem got magnified from being one person to being they. Now, we can't be too hard on Elijah because, you know, we've all done the same kind of thing. Not too many weeks ago and too many months ago in the, in the winter months when it seemed like flu epidemic was just all over Virginia. Preaching in revival meetings from week to week, I'd go to different churches and I, I heard one pastor complaining about how many people in his church got sick with the flu and his statement was, everybody got the flu. 
Well, I know what he meant. He meant a lot of people, but he didn't say a lot of people got the flu. He said everybody in church got the flu. I doubt even half of his people got the flu. But in his mind, the problem was magnified, and he said everybody in the church got the flu. I've heard school-age kids come home from school and say, nobody at school likes me. That's probably not really true. There are probably a few that don't like you, but you probably got more people that like you than those that don't. But in our mind, it's easy to get magnified. Or somebody comes home from work and says, nobody at work appreciates me. Nobody appreciates me. I know that's the way you feel sometimes, but it's not true. It's not true. It's, it's a magnification of the problem. Now, from my perspective as an evangelist, if I were going to give in to you know, the complaints of the day, I might say something like this. We never see revivals today like we used to have back in the day. That would be a common complaint of an evangelist. But it's just not true. I want to tell you, not too many Sunday nights ago in Parisburg, Virginia, where Doug Duncan is the pastor, seven people in a single night received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Give God some praise right there. I read a tweet from our general overseer, Tim Hill, not long ago. He gave a two-month report. I don't know which two months he was referring to, December, January, January, February, I don't know. But he said worldwide, in Church of God, in two months' time, over 69,000 people had been saved. So I just want to tell you something. Things aren't as bad as you think they are, and your problem is smaller than you think. Someone says, no, you don't know my problem, or you would never say that. We have the same mentality sometimes as those ten spies that came back from the promised land. You remember what they said? There are giants in the land, and what do they say about themselves? We are what? We're grasshoppers. No, that, that, that's a magnification of the problem. We're little grasshoppers. We are not grasshoppers. Somebody say, I'm not a grasshopper. Wipe the green off your mouth. We're not grasshoppers. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Elijah's problem was a single woman that wanted to kill him, but in his mind it became plural, they seek to take my life. I want to share with you a story that I heard from out of the ministry of Jensen Franklin. He's one of my favorite preachers. And he told this story, I, I hope I tell the story accurately, that he had been to a party, and among some of the foods that they had eaten that night at the party were some mushrooms, and someone took some of the leftover mushrooms and cut them up in some small pieces and put them on a little platter and set them down on the floor for the house cat, I guess, to eat some of these mushrooms. And you have to be careful with the mushrooms, you know, they can be poisonous. And about an hour after this cat ate the leftover mushrooms, that cat was laying over against the wall, moaning, belly aching, groaning, foaming at the mouth. And someone said the, the, the mushrooms must have been poisonous. The cat is sick. They found everybody at the party that had eaten those mushrooms and all went down to the local hospital and had their stomachs pumped. And when they got back to the house, the cat had given birth to a litter of kittens. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the mushrooms. I love that story. <laughs> but somehow in our mind, we allow the problem to magnify. That was Elijah's problem, and sad to say, sometimes that's our problem as well. But I want to tell you, your problem is smaller than you think. For emphasis, can we say that together? Your problem is smaller than you think. Let's go to point number two. Point number two, your God is greater than you think. 
In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, Elijah makes a statement and says, I alone am left. But four verses later, God says, no, I, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. When Elijah was in that cave, at least twice, God said, what are you doing here? How did you get here? You're supposed to be the prophet out there on the cutting edge, making a difference, influencing the lives of people, turning their hearts back to God. And from the time he heard the death threat from Jezebel, he had run approximately a 100 miles south and is in a cave. He's far away from where he really ought to be. And the Lord says, what are you doing in a place like, how did you get here? This place of depression, this place of discouragement, how did you get here? And Elijah starts answering that question and he says, God, we've got three major problems today in Israel. And I'm not going to delve into this, but he said, the people have forsaken your covenant. Huge problem. They've thrown down your altar. National precise problem. They've killed all your prophets except for me. And right now, I'm out of commission because of a death threat. So God, we got three big problems and perhaps you can solve those three problems, but you always use people and you have nobody that you can use right now. All the other prophets are dead and I'm out of commission, so God, you are without options to solve our problem. God probably felt like laughing at that as if to say, you don't think I can use you? I'm getting ready to use you. You think you're the only one left? I've got 7,000 others that you don't know anything about. Somehow in the mind of Elijah, God's options were so limited that he had no option. But I want to remind somebody this morning that your God is greater than you think he is. Hallelujah. Clap your hands and rejoice in the Lord. Our God is greater than we think he is. I heard somebody make a statement the other day and I, and I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget. And it says, your praise can't go any higher than your revelation of who God is. I thought, that's powerful. Your praise cannot rise any higher than the revelation, you know, in your mind of who God really is. In your mind, if God is a small God, then your praise is going to be a small praise. But when we realize our God is a great God, then your praise becomes a great praise. How many know your God is a great God? Shout amen. When I begin to think about how great God is, it's beyond our wildest imaginations. One scripture says that God can span the heavens. Now, I don't know how wide or the heavens are. They're, I mean, millions of light years. They've sent Hubble telescope out into space, and they have located little clusters of stars on the far regions of the known universe called quasars. But they're so far in distance, you know, to the extreme north and south and east and west, the distance is mind-blowing. But God can span it with his hand. A span is from this side of the thumb to that side of the longest finger, which is my middle finger on the other side. That's a span. This table is one, two, three and a half spans wide. But God can open up his hand and span the universe. That's the God that we serve. I'm talking about a God that is so great that even the scripture says he holds the waters and the oceans and the seas in the palm of his hand. How much water can you hold in the palm of your hand? A tablespoonful, two tablespoons full. At some point, it's going to start leaking between your fingers. I read that if you were in a boat 
on the water. It's over near Japan somewhere, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. And you were to drop a bowling ball off the side of the boat, it would take it one hour and four minutes before it would ever hit the bottom. That's a lot of water. But God holds all the oceans and the seas in the palm of his hand. He can span the heavens. He knows the names and the number of the stars. And that's the God that solves our problems. That's the God that heals our bodies. That's the God that saves our family. That's the God that makes you, Pulaski Church of God, strong. Clap your hands and celebrate the goodness of God with me today. Your God is greater than you think. Let me share a testimony out of the ministry of Corey Tinboom. Perhaps some of you would know who she is. She was the Dutch girl that was captured by the Nazis during the Second World War, but after the war was over, she was an evangelist and a missionary. She traveled all over the world, and she preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. At one point in her ministry, she was in Taiwan, and the Lord had given her a list of nations that she was going to preach in over the next number of months of her ministry. And so she went to an airport, and she gave them the list of the countries she wanted flight tickets to, in this exact order. She said, I want to fly from Taiwan to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong to Australia, from Australia to New Zealand, then back to Australia, from Australia to South Africa, from South Africa to Israel, and from Israel to Holland in that exact order. So she sat over here and waited while they pulled all the tickets together. Some of them were weeks away or months away, but they were pulling all the tickets together and They came over to her and said, Corey, that is an impossibility. They gave her the tickets, but they had some of them out of sequence. And she says, no, I can't go out of sequence. I have to go in this exact order. They said, it's impossible. You said you wanted to fly one of those trips from from, uh, Australia to South Africa. Now, this was years ago, but here's what they told her. There is no airline in the world that makes that trip from Australia to South Africa. It's too many miles. There's no place to refuel. There's no airline in the world that can give you that flight. We would need a place to land and refuel. Apparently, your God was wrong. You can't go in that exact order. Corey said, well, I guess I'll just have to pray for an island. (laughs) Within the hour, they contacted Corey and said, your God must be a big God. The Australian Airlines have just decided to start landing on the Mauritius Islands 1,200 miles off the coast of Africa. By the time your flight arrives, we will have a refueling station. You can keep your exact order. I just thought I'd come by and tell somebody, your God is a big God. He can create a way where there seems like there is no way. He's awesome in every respect. Somebody shout, your God is greater than you think. Let's move to point number three, the final point of the message, and that is that your recovery is closer than you think. 1 Kings chapter 19, at verse 15, then the Lord said to him, go return on your way. In other words, get out of this cave and retrace your steps and get back where you belong. And verse 19, so he departed from there, and the narrative continues that he found Elisha. You know what happened. He cast his mantle upon him, and he began to mentor and teach him. And so this is part of the recovery process. Your recovery 
is closer than you think. There's Elijah 100 miles away from where he belonged. He traveled this most likely on foot. And when God twice says, what are you doing in this cave? You need to get out of here and get back to that place where I've called you to be. And in the mind of Elijah, he probably thought, I'm a long ways from my full recovery. I mean, I'm way down here, and where you want me is way up there. It's going to take me a long time to get back to where you want me to be. But listen carefully. Your first step out of the cave is the beginning of your recovery process. Maybe I'm talking to somebody here this morning, and you says, you know, I'm a far ways from where I really need to be. Maybe you, you're, you're a recovering addict. Maybe you're recovering from depression. Maybe you're recovering from a divorce. Maybe you're recovering from a surgery. And you say, my recovery is way over there. I want to tell you something. Your recovery is closer than you think. And your first step out of the cave is the first step of your recovery. Praise God forever. Clap your hands and celebrate the goodness of the Lord. You know what I think was the amazing thing about his recovery? Before he ever made it all the way back the 100 miles, I don't know how far it was. Once he came out of that cave and he started walking, going back where he belonged, before he ever got all the way back the 100 miles, he walks by a field and there's a guy out there plowing in the field behind a yoke of oxen and the man's name is Elisha. And Elisha feels inspired of the Holy Spirit to take his mantle off and to cast it over Elisha. Everyone that was present that day understood what that was all about. This was about the changing of the guard. One prophet mentoring another. Elisha was to become his apprentice or his protege. He was about to, Elijah was about to pour himself into the life of another. And he hadn't even yet made it all the way back the hundred miles to where he belonged. I want to say something very clearly. Part of your recovery is helping somebody else. Now, usually when we're the one recovering, we want everybody to pour into us until we are fully recovered. It usually doesn't happen that way. Part of your recovery is helping somebody else recover. How many know that makes a whole lot of sense? Amen. Now, I don't want to deviate very far from, from Elijah and Elisha, but I want to just insert this real quickly, if I may, that in the Old Testament, Joseph, you remember, was put in prison, an innocent man. They lied on him and said he tried to rape Potiphar's wife, but that was not true. He was innocent, and he got put in prison. And sometime after that, there was a death threat to the king. And it was anonymous, and they weren't really sure who was trying to kill the king. That might be the butler. It might be the baker. They weren't sure, so they just put both of them into prison. One of them was guilty, and the other one was innocent. And the idea here is that there were three guys in prison. Two of them were innocent. One of them was guilty, but they were all in the same boat. And one day, Joseph looks over at the butler and the baker and asks this question, what are you guys doing so sad today? Apparently, they had that, that look on their face. They, they, were, they were sad. They were forlorn. They were discouraged. You know, and I thought about this. This is amazing to me. Joseph was in the same situation, the same prison. He should have been looking sad, and maybe one of them should have said to Joseph, why are you looking so sad? That's not what the Bible says. He looked over at them and said, why are you looking so sad? 
And they said, we both had dreams last night. We, neither one of us know the interpretation. He says, tell me the interpretation. My God knows all kinds of things. I can give you the interpretation to your dream. And he gave them both the interpretation to the dream. Do you know the story? The one that was guilty, they executed. The one that was innocent, they restored him back to his rightful place. And it was later on that that man who Joseph helped became a key in helping Joseph get out of prison. Your deliverance comes through helping somebody else with their deliverance. I think that is an amazing thing right there to find somebody else that's going through trouble and help them too. We're of the tendency, we want to sit over there, you know, and, and, and mope and, and gripe and complain and maybe somebody will pay attention to me. I mean, I'm not going to like anybody's Facebook until they start liking my Facebook. You know, we can get that kind of mentality. I'm not going to church until somebody calls me on the phone. I'm not, I'm not going to do this until somebody appreciates me. I'm not going to do this until somebody, that's, that's kind of the mentality. I was preaching in a place in North Carolina on a Sunday morning just like this, about midway through my sermon. A gentleman uh, exited the building. I didn't think anything about it. I'd been to this church several different times. He was a friend of mine. I didn't know if he got a text message or had to step out for a sickness. Or I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't bother me, but I just saw him leave. Well, he didn't come back to the revival service Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, or Wednesday night. I thought he was working. I really didn't know what was going on. A couple of weeks later, he called me on the telephone and said, I owe you an apology. Well, I didn't know he owed me an apology. I said, what's, what's up? What's, what are you, what's the apology for? He said, I've been mad at you for about a year. <laughs> I didn't even know he had been mad at me for about a year. I said, you've been mad at me for a year? What happened? What did I, what did I do that offended you where you would be mad at me for a year? He said, I w I've been so mad at you, I didn't want to hear you finish preaching the sermon on Sunday morning. And I didn't come back to any of those revival services because I didn't want to hear you. He told me this on the phone. I says, what in the world did I do that make you feel that way towards me? He said, about a year ago, you were down here on this district preaching at another church. Do you remember that? I said, I remember that. He said, well, me and my wife came over and visited one night in the revival. Do you remember that? I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, you didn't recognize me from the pulpit that night. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, I did recognize you from the pulpit. I said, because there were several folk from the surrounding churches that were visiting, and I mentioned some places, and I said, I recognized them. And another pastor was there, and I recognized them. I said, and then I looked over where you guys were. It was you and your wife and your pastor and about two other people, five of you, and I recognized you. I said, I remember I recognized you. He said, that's right, that's right, you did recognize me. He said, but when you recognize the other people, you said a lot of good things about them. But when you recognized us, you didn't say all those good things about me. I'm going to give the man credit. At least he called me on the phone and apologized. But I also want to say this. If you're going to let little things like that bother you, you're going to have a hard time living in victory. If somebody didn't say just the right word or somebody didn't treat you just exactly the right way, Joseph could have sat over there and sulked and complained. Nobody paid any attention to me. Nobody asked me how come I'm feeling sad. No, he turned the tables and started looking for somebody else that he could pour into and bless them. That's what Elijah is doing. He's a hundred miles traveling to recovery. And on the way, he starts pouring into the lives of other people. Clap your hands and give God praise. Thank you, Jesus. 
I'm not going to preach much longer. I'll mention just a few things here and then we'll come to a close. A couple years ago, I was in Bristol in a revival meeting, and on the last final night of the revival, we had water baptism. I think we baptized seven people in water that night. Michael Booker's the pastor there, and before each person was baptized in water, he gave them opportunity to share their testimony. And this one young lady, probably in her early 20s, I'm guessing, was about to be baptized, and she started telling her story. I was weeping and crying. So were many of the people that were there. She said that from the time she was very young, she was raped by her stepfather through most of her youth, teen years. And she said she got so mad and so upset, she had made up her mind, I will never trust another man. She said, but about three weeks ago, one of the ladies here in the church invited me to come out here. And they were co-workers. And she asked the question, she said, I asked her the question, is your pastor a man or a woman? It's Michael Booker. He's a man. She said, but I'm not coming to your church because I cannot trust a man. She said, I'm only going to go to a church where there's a woman pastor because I cannot trust another man. And while she's standing waist deep in water telling this story, she said, but this co-worker of mine is so Christ-like and so compassionate and so loving and such a friend and kept asking me, she said, I finally decided, even though your pastor's a man, I'm going to come not for him, but for my co-worker. And she started crying. She said, I've only been at this church about three weeks. And she said, I've surrendered my life to Christ and renewed my relationship. She said, I've learned something in the last three weeks. I found a man I can trust, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> we all stood, and we clapped our hands, and we gave an applause. I thought to myself, that woman may never trust me as an evangelist. She may never trust another man, but as long as she can put her trust in Jesus, she'll be all right. And then she made this statement. She said, my life is filled with all kind of hurt and anger and bitterness. She said, but when I go down in this water and I come up again, she said, I'm leaving all that behind me and I'm going to go forward in Christ. I was thinking to myself, this, this is a part of her recovery. She's letting the hurts go. And she's reaching out into her future with a sense of hope. I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of hope for your future, not to destroy you. Can you say amen? I'm closing with this. I was also in the Martinsville area in a revival meeting, and I had preached on Sunday morning, and then we went out and got lunch. That afternoon, I was checking into the Comfort Inn. It might actually be Collinsville instead of Martinsville. They're right there together. So by the time I got ready to check into the motel room, I'd already taken off my jacket and taken off my necktie. I didn't have my Bible. In other words, I don't think there was anything that identified me as a preacher. I was just a guy checking into a motel room. I put my luggage on a luggage cart, went to the elevator, up to the second floor, unloaded all of my luggage and returned the cart to the lobby of the motel. 
Then I got in my car, which was parked under the canopy right there by the front door, moved around to the back of the motel. And there are some exterior stairs that you can use if you don't want the elevator. Just walk up the stairs. It's two flights, but it's manageable. And I walked up the stairs, had my little card to swipe in order to let me into the corridor. Sitting at the top of the stairs was a lady right in the middle of the, of the stairs. I thought, I hope she slips over to one side. I don't want to step over her. When I got there, politely, she moved over. and I stepped past her and swiped my card. With my back to her, just two or three steps away, she's still sitting there. She found out later she was one of the workers at Comfort Inn. I think she was on a smoke break. She says, excuse me, sir. I thought she was going to ask me for some money, you know. <laughs> and I turned and looked at her and said, yes. She said, are you a preacher? Now, I didn't have my tie on. I didn't have on a jacket. I didn't have my Bible. My first thought was, how would she have ever guessed I was a preacher? I said, well, yes, ma'am, I am a preacher. I said, but if you don't mind me asking, how did you guess that I was a preacher? I was stunned by what she said. She said, sir, I can look in your eyes and tell you're a preacher. <laughs> I got those preacher eyes. <laughs> she said, I can look in your eyes and tell you're a preacher. I said, well, you guessed right. I said, I am a preacher. I just got finished preaching just a few minutes ago. She got kind of teary. She said, I need somebody to pray for me. Well, I had a busy afternoon ahead of me, but right then everything stopped because I had somebody right in front of me that I had never met before that needed prayer. I says, ma'am, I'll be glad to pray for you. How can I pray with you? She was talking to a complete stranger, but she just began to unfold the hurts of her life. She said, 18 years ago, I was raped by my boyfriend who forced himself upon me. And I got pregnant, and then he forced me to have an abortion. And she said, that was 18 years ago. And she said, for all these long 18 years, I have always felt like God didn't love me and God couldn't forgive me because I went through a rape and an abortion. And I, and I had the opportunity to stand in front of this woman that was seated there on the top step at a comfort inn and to remind her that God still loves you regardless of what you've been through, regardless of your past failures, your past choices and mistakes. I had opportunity to share with her that the God that we serve is a God of restoration. And this woman began to take a first step in the right direction. Found out later the pastor's wife that I was with on that particular uh, revival meeting works for a ministry that helps women in that exact condition. And we were able to get together some materials and some help materials and leave them with this lady as a part of a recovery. You never know who you rub shoulders with and who you meet every day that needs to take the right step, the first step, towards their recovery. And that's what this altar service is all about. Tony, if you'll come, please. Stand with me in the house of the Lord. Lord, we hear what you're saying to us today, that you're a God of recovery and that our problem is smaller than we think and our God is greater than we think. And our recovery is closer than we think. I pray that right now through the moving of the Holy Spirit, every person here would feel the touch, the tug, 
of the Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to somebody personally this morning. The one who, like Elijah, has somehow allowed a problem to become so magnified, so big, that it seems like there really is no answer. Perhaps the one bereaved whose heart is broken. Perhaps the one that has been told you have a terminal cancer. Perhaps the one whose family has recently been shattered through a separation or a divorce. Perhaps the one who was released from work and now doesn't know how they're going to make ends meet. Perhaps someone dealing with depression thinking I can't get out from under the weight of this thing called depression. Perhaps someone so stressed out that you can't even focus anymore that somehow you lost a sense of hope. You lost the vitality and the zest for life and things have become so monotonous lifeless and hopeless could it be that the Lord sent me by here this morning to remind you that your God is greater than you think and that your recovery is closer than you think I want you to open your eyes and just look forward here just for a moment I'm about to invite you to the altar but I want to say something that's a little personal and transparent a number of years ago in my life I went through depression I was not clinically diagnosed but I, I went through a deep depression my wife is a wonderful Christian spirit filled lady repeatedly day after day night after night week after week was trying to encourage me and lift me up and help me but when you get into that kind of depression, it's hard to receive the help that someone's trying to give you. you. You come up with excuses and reasons. She was giving me all the right advice. And I was rejecting and refusing every, every bit of help. And one night, sitting up in bed, 3 a.m. in the morning, tears rolling down my face. I don't even know why. I was just, I couldn't hold the tears back. I was just crying. I was just so depressed. She was helping me, and finally she says, Cliff, at some point you're going to have to let me help you. You're not letting me help you. I'm trying to help you. you got to let me help you. And something clicked. Something, a light turned on, and I thought, you know, that's right. She's telling me all the right things. She's saying all the right things, and I've kept the door closed. I kept the wall up. I, I was just so depressed. But when she said, you've got to let me help you, I pulled back the curtains and let a little sunshine in. Well, it, I didn't receive an immediate deliverance. It took a couple of days. took a couple of weeks. It's all behind me now, thank God. But I'm going to tell somebody here this morning, I'm trying to help you. I'm saying what my wife told me. I'm trying to help you, but you've got to let me help you.
And today, you need to take another step toward your recovery. Elijah had to come to the conclusion, I'm getting out of this cave. When he stepped out of that cave into the sunlight and it hit him in the face, he had to turn his face back toward where he'd come from and take that first step. And that was the beginning of his recovery. Somebody here today is going to take your first step. Somebody else is in the midst of your recovery. You ever went one step forward and two step backwards? How many know what I'm talking about? But today you're going to take another step toward your recovery.